I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives. And so you're like, you know, I can be great. Yeah. Like, we can be great. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I pump up my employees. You should. I try to pump mine up. Ruby, you're great. David, you're great. I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Ian Tafoya, a 2012 political science graduate. Ian is a world-renowned advocate fighting for human rights on the local and international level. He's worked with many people, organizations, companies, governments, and communities in order to make an impact on global issues ranging from poverty alleviation to environmental sustainability. Currently, Ian serves as the director of Green Latinos, an organization that seeks to create a healthy and equitable society where communities of color are liberated from disproportionate environmental burdens, free to breathe fresh air, drink pure water, access clean transportation, and enjoy our majestic public lands, oceans, and waters. He's received recognition for his work from both the Denver Council of Governments, the Denver Regional Air Quality Council, the National River Network, and of course, MSU Denver, for which he received recognition as a 10 under 10 award winner in 2021. Ian is a lover of the arts, a passionate advocate, and a proud Roadrunner alum. Ian, we're so happy to have you. Welcome yeah, to Yeah, thanks talk. for having me. Go Roadrunners. <laughs> Go Roadrunners. Oh my gosh. Ian, thanks for joining us. This is rad to have you. Yeah, thanks. I know you've been kind of on a, a tour of public speaking for a bit, so hopefully this will be the least threatening and most inviting conversation you've had in a bit. Oh, it's always great to have a conversation, especially with people who have helped support your work yeah. and the community here around Metro State. A lot of busy things for you. Political science in 2012. I know you've come back to get some water certifications and a few other things for mm-hmm. our program. Why MSU Denver? Let's start there. What was it about this place? You know, accessible, really easy. Rode my bike down here every day. Um, I was a transfer student, and I just think the culture, being a Hispanic-serving institution now, is really important for me, and the alumni network is really incredible. Yeah, you've been involved since the beginning. I've been here about 10 years, and I think we were just talking earlier that you're one of the first alums I met. We had a casino night at one of the homecomings that we started to kind of rebrand, and I remember you making a presence, being very well-known, easy to talk to, and you've been really connected since then. Yeah, we're going to have more casino nights. We can bring it back. Yeah, I mean, it was fun. It was I fun. made some money. I won some tickets, I think. <laughs> Who knows what you cashed those in for, but you won some. No, I think I think it was like a, a pass to the Museum of Nature and Science Very where cool. I worked in high school. So yeah. that was exciting for me. Yeah. So you're a Denver native as well. Um, the true kind. True. I'm, I'm yeah. a Hickory Apache and OK Wingay. Studied Native American studies here mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, my family, uh, fifth generation Denverite. I'm my mom's side. I'm a dad's side. You know, time immemorial, really here in Colorado and and the Rio Grande Valley uh, that my family still lives in in northern New Mexico. That's awesome. Coming to MSC Denver then probably felt like a really a natural thing for you to do. Continuing to stay in your city, you've lived here your whole life, right? Never left. Any intentions on ever leaving? You know, I I see myself maybe on a path to do some international work, perhaps living international. I've always had a goal of working for the United Nations World Food Program. I think that that was um, even more enforced in my mind when they won the Nobel Peace Prize during the pandemic for feeding individuals. I had a chance to see Kofi Annan, former secretary, speak early on and like I was like 19 years old. And I I did model UN in high school, but I think the, the being of service to people, the environment, water, I think the next stepping stone for me is probably the Department of Interior. That's yeah. like kind of the goal I have for myself, uh, really being a steward to the cultural resources, the water, the land. It's so important at this exact moment in history. And I just want to say, put me on the team, coach. I'm here to be an all-around player. What you need me to do, I want to be part of the team. 
That's awesome. I think that's the mentality many of us need. Instead of having an end goal that is, I want to be this person, this role, this, it's what do I want to accomplish and whatever I need to do to get there, which I think is pretty incredible. Yeah. And their headquarters is in Rome. So <laughs> it's not a bad, uh, you know, and, and Panama City is really uh, Panama City, Panama, not mm-hmm. Florida for those. <laughs> um, I just had a chance to visit there and met with the United Nations Environment Program leader, some of the leaders there. And it's uh, that is the epicenter for doing South American work. Uh, my fiance is Venezuelan. I could see myself at least moving towards international work. But I think it all starts small. You know, mm-hmm. I got my start with neighborhood politics, organizing here on campus. Then I started city, state. I'm doing federal now and we're bridging into that. And I think sometimes people go out the other way where they start in federal government. And I think it's really hard for people to understand what the impact is. But, you know, when you're when you're in an office at a city hall and you're picking up the phone and you're hearing about traffic circles, I think it helps make for a better person who's going to pick up the phone and say, how much money should we send for traffic circles in 10 states. Yeah. I I do think it is so valuable what you've just said in terms of starting, starting in the weeds, understanding what are the issues that are affecting people's day-to-day life. Because when I think about, especially your advocacy work, uh, when we're talking about climate and we're talking about water rights and we're talking about things in that space, for most people, they're not thinking about that on a daily basis because it's not affecting them right now in their day-to-day life the way that they're perceiving it. Mm -hmm. It's affecting all of us. Don't get us wrong. But if you're not experiencing it, on the daily, you're less inclined to be a part of that. That's at least been my experience with trying to talk about things that matter in the big scheme, but people are so focused on what's happening in their life. And so I think if we transition that to this idea of how do we get involved, how do we actually make change, how do we manifest movement of things, big institutional things that need to change, you got to understand the weeds to then be able to even make the case to people to say why you should even care. And I imagine that has to be a huge part of one of your challenges is to get people to understand why this matters. Education is foundational to like my pedagogy as an organizer. I worked as an early childhood educator, got a certificate actually here with my credits at Metro State. And the work that we've done around child psychology and understanding transfers to adult education. And, you know, even if you have a political science degree like I do, nobody taught me how the water commission worked, the air commission worked. Um, They also I use this analogy a lot. They're like kind of like tennis and racquetball. They're both played with a ball and a racket, but the rules are different. And there's some nuance to that. And so with my career, I really try to approach it. And in particular, my work with Green Latinos now is around public health education, teaching to people what a chemical is, how it impacts their body, what are the public health implications of that, civics, uh, how do you make change for the things that are impacting you. And then I think there's a piece about financial literacy also, which is the personal choice kind of conversations about making sure your water is safe or maybe your water is safe, but you're being misinformed. And so you're double paying for water. How do you reduce your energy bills? Um, what can you do to change your transportation costs? I think some of that is all wrapped up into personal choice and then also the advocacy to create those avenues in the first place. Yeah. It's incredible work, and it has to be multi-tiered in that standpoint. And I think education, especially when we're starting at the local level, is where it starts. So as you think about, you know, moving this towards a a Department of Interior space and getting into that federal space, right? We just had half of the House not vote for our infrastructure bill that include things like water, right? Mm. What? What changes in in that space? Is it more, is it about education or are we in just a totally different political space where there isn't going to be movement? Or is there hope? Well, I think the reason that I'm uh, the director of Green Latinos Colorado, we're the first state 
My company was founded 15 years ago in Washington, D.C., really in response to gridlock on climate action, also the need for amendments to protect the most impacted. At the time, they were discussing cap and trade. And, you know, you need amendments to cap and trade. It's not just enough to say, like, one industry can buy an unlimited amount of credits. They may end up putting more harm and more burden onto an individual community. And so I think that we knew and we know that the federal government can be gridlocked. And so that's why local fights are important. And that's why we have to be involved in regulatory and legislative efforts here. It's why we coach local governments on best practices mm -hmm. for you know engaging our communities. Having worked for three branches of local government, I think that I'm prepared to coach local governments on that component. And you know, even at the most local level, a person who is fighting CDOT because they're taking their piece of land to expand a roadway or very nuanced local fights about where they're zoning and putting a battery factory. We now have a responsibility in our strategic plan with Green Latinos to support it. We call it the Frontline Accelerator Program. But I will say at the federal level, there has been a lot of movement. Um, I was fortunate enough to be at the signing of an executive order for environmental justice with the president. Mm -hmm. That was an incredible experience. I never thought uh, growing up with the smokestack in my front yard that I would be there to see this kind of change occur. We have made the resources happen with Build Back Better and IRA, but we have to make sure we spend the money. We have to make sure it comes back to our community, whether that's professional services like architects, um, engineers, um, the people who are constructing it, the people who have small businesses that are constructing it. We need to also make sure that there's compliance. So let's say you have an environmental science degree. If they're making more concrete at the facility and that facility is not in compliance, it's actually adding more harm onto right. a community. But if we can get that worldview into those that are being educated in a university setting that when they come out of here, um, that they have that civic mindset of taking advantage of those resources. I think we're going to be okay. And I think the next piece in my mind is around public finance. And that's how do we ensure that at the local level, we don't set these, like they call them fiscal cliffs where you get a lot of money all at once. How are you saving it? They tell you you have to spend it. And then all of a sudden the programs end right. and the communities who need them are suffering. And the work that we've done, especially through the pandemic uh, where natural, organic, mutual aid groups were created, those need to be supported so they continue in their response. And so I'm a huge believer in public banking, infrastructure banks, opportunity for us to pour that money that we're getting in so that we're using the money multiplier in our behalf and it's not all going back to Wall Street. Right. You make it make sense, right? <laughs> and, that's, and I think that's the challenge is we hear so many – there's, there's just so many ways to tackle problems, uh, and I think f coming up with the rational ways and being able to articulate those is something that we're just at a deficit for uh, in this country in general, and so I just appreciate that. Not metro state grads. No, not metro state grads, right? But I do. I appreciate the thoughtfulness of having a plan, not just having a vision, but then having a plan and realizing that it encompasses so many different things. I mean, we can read your bio and say, okay – we are very much talking to somebody that cares about activism and and our environment and some and you know community organizing in this space. But then we can transition it to this idea of well, what do we do from an infrastructure standpoint and banking, right? And mm -hmm. I think you actually serve on what the Rocky Mountain Public Banking Institute. Institute. Yep. That's a huge tie that I think sometimes we don't see those natural ways of like, well, how do we finance and how do we make sure we have sustainability over time in making sure that money isn't just spent or we gave it to you, you tried, it failed. Well, you gave us three years of money. That's not enough money to really put something into place. And so having kind of an infrastructure background, I think, is a great approach. Mm -hmm. So. So let's talk a little bit about your time at MSU Denver. You mentioned that uh, you started kind of your grassroots efforts here. What did that look like? 
Mm. I carried my first petition here on campus. I helped create some clubs here on campus. We helped reauthorize the RTD pass. That was pretty awesome. What else did we do? We brought composting here to Rary Campus. And, you know, just recently, last year, we passed a ballot issue requiring composting and recycling everywhere in Denver. Um, millions and millions of people it's going to impact. But I learned how to organize around composting here. And I remember standing in the Tivoli and saying, hey, that doesn't go there with the subway wrapper. And people would tell me you get bent. And, you know, like <laughs> right. the tough the tough part of, of getting people to embrace the change. And, you know, you fast forward, it's been over a decade and we're barely getting it. Mm-hmm. to the whole city, you know? And yeah. so it's, it's a, it's shown me that it can be a, a, a long road to influencing a lot of people, but, you know, starting with the tri-institution campus taught me a lot about how governments like interact and oh, work sure. together. We planted some of the first fruit trees. I remember now we have this huge community garden in front of the science building. Mm-hmm. We wanted that. We planted the seeds, so to say, to make that happen. I can remember getting pulled over by the, the cops here for riding my bike on the pedestrian thing on a Friday when no one was around. Now it's a bike lane. I remember riding around on 15th Street with a million buses coming out of City Park West to come to work with a huge backpack on and feeling like it was unsafe. Mm -hmm. You know, after I graduated, I went to the city and we fought for the very first protected bikeway downtown. Now we're cutting ribbons Mm -hmm. for massive projects crossing into Metro. So I think that's really exciting for me. I still think we have a lot of work to do around West connectivity from the Latino neighborhoods and from the West Side into downtown. I think Metro is a natural bridge for that. You know, the first petition I carried was around recycling in the parks. I got sent to a parks board meeting for a class. The Denver Post wrote about this when I was running for mayor. It changed my life. Yeah. And just one class assignment brought me into a space where I was like, I I thrive in this like group setting of cooperation and universities. Absolutely. What that is as well. Yeah. So before that class, what was the plan? I wanted to become a horticultural therapist, and uh, I worked with kids for a long time. I started at the Museum of Nature and Science in high school with the job as a teacher's assistant. I came home from school. My grandma was sick. I got a job working as an early childhood educator. I loved it. And then I got enamored with this like idea of being a horticultural therapist. I did finish it, a, a accreditation from Metro, um, Colorado State, excuse me. That's right. That other school in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, there's a, I've, I haven't had a chance to attend many of the universities yeah. here in Colorado. And, um, I, you know, I'm really grateful for them and, and the work. I did half the credits here. I actually did my hard science here. I did my undergrad research in increasing yields on top of the science building over here. And I wanted to work with kids that had sensory issues and use the earth to help heal them. And then I got pulled into working for the mayor on Urban Ag Initiative, and that turned into a job with a director of community affairs and and then the city council. And then, you know, my life is just on a different path, yeah. but I still incorporate education into everything I do. And when I hate what it's going on, I feel like running away and starting a farm. Fair. An education farm. <laughs> right. Well, there's, there's still time for that. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll see the theme though, of like food, yeah, food. clean water. This is what my career has become. Mm-hmm. And even then when I wanted to grow food, I still wanted to work for the UN world food program. That was like still a vision of mine. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think you need to do to get to the UN Food World Program? I think I could probably apply mm-hmm. and go work for the UN right yeah. now. I think it's about time and place sure. for yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and whether or not you feel like you've accomplished the mission of what you're working on. And I have the opportunity to chair the state's environmental justice task force, which is created by the EJ Act. It took a lot to pass that act. And we're really starting to see it bear fruit. I was on a call yesterday with like 10 agencies 
and environmental justice leaders and they're telling us their legislative priorities like that wasn't happening mm -hmm. six years ago we weren't at the table we weren't informed and we didn't have the opportunity to like give our feedback so i think in a few years you know i think it's pretty natural i do a lot of work with federal agencies now mm -hmm. i've spent a lot of my career saying yes when the right opportunity comes sure. i've been headhunted mostly even for this job mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not actively looking at the moment. I think that's the best way to go. And I give that advice to students often here on campus is that things will come to you if you're doing good work in the places that you're doing it. If you have passion for the things that you're doing, uh, your work ethic is where it needs to be, which I never question the work ethic of our Roadrunner students, right? Mm -hmm. We know we have to work very hard here. And when those opportunities come, like they feel right, right? That doesn't mean you don't have to do other things that sometimes you don't necessarily want to do or they're a little bit more of a drag. When those opportunities come, you got to chase them. So I'm excited to hear what happens for you. Yeah. And even if you, I, I, this happened to me recently, I was encouraged by a Congress member to apply for a job that I was being recruited for. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I really love what I'm doing. And they're like, does it ever hurt to go to a job interview? You can always say no. Mm -hmm. Have you ever gone into something and you left being like, absolutely not? Or you left him in like, yeah, like I think this is what it is. And unless you put yourself in the opportunity and it's not every day you get an interview and mm -hmm. that's a muscle you have to practice. Yeah. Even just updating resumes. I tell you, I've been here 10 years and then every every couple years for the accreditation for the program I teach in, they're like, oh, we need an updated CV resume. And I'm like, oh, God, I got to do that. <laughs> you know, and so it's all muscles you got to practice. So you mentioned you're engaged. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It was a couple months ago. Ah, That's awesome. I assume that has to play a part in whether you're making a huge move to Panama City or to Rome as well, right? Well, I think she speaks three languages. <laughs> She's from South America. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of abroad doesn't scare, uh, her. scare her. And, you know, she's equally doing amazing work. And who knows, maybe it would be her career that we would have to follow. She does voter registration in 10 battleground states yeah. defending democracy. And I think that, you know, been really impressed by her ability to – channel this idea that we can't give up on voting, we can't give up on democracy. She's registered millions of people to vote. And I'm inspired by that work every day because the basis of democracy is under attack. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And it is even the want to know the importance for a Metro listener, right? Like the community here voted against building this place, mm -hmm. but the greater community voted for it. And so the power of your vote makes a huge difference for transforming entire places. Yeah. So you're both in very intense, very important, very impactful work. How do you keep from not being collectively tired? <laughs> uh, or do you? Are I'm not you saying, just exhausted I'm not gonna, right now? I'm not going to say I'm never tired. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I love to dance. I, I really see arts as like a, an outlet that is great for me. Um, my DJ that brings me a lot of happiness. I find my friends in the music industry. Let's say I go to a concert and I'm like, man, I, I'm like still thinking about the day and I start talking to them about something. They're like, I don't care. Like there's lights in front of you right now. Like they're jamming on the saxophone. Pay attention to that. So I think that that's like a nice release. I think you got to take care of yourself, of course. And I really encourage people to exercise and treat themselves well. And then water is life. I, I, I just posted about this like the other day. You know, where's your closest body of water? Have a relationship with it. Go to it. It takes energy. There's no doubt. It gives you energy. I know that from being a teacher. When people are out of whack and you sit down and you give a little kid a glass of water, then they're ready to talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like that is all basic to me. And like, you know, it, it heals. Like that's why you cry. Uh, you're carried it in your mother. Like these are the basic principles I was taught from an indigenous philosophy. And I think that that's a thing that we need to do more of and convening with nature 
and putting your hands in the soil, right? Like this is like what I pictured doing with my life. And I even got a water certificate from Metro, which, mm-hmm. you know, I want to talk about the impacts of that. Uh, I got the certificate and like six months later, I was named National River Hero. I was doing the work already, mm-hmm. but credentials often will help mm-hmm. convince decision makers as well. Yeah. And that's through our One World, One Water program. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, what's fantastic about that program. So it's not its own standalone major. It's a bunch of certificates that lend themselves to other types of majors so that if you want to study politics, like political science, you can get these water certificates that then inform kind of the policy standpoint of that. If we're studying something from a scientific standpoint, biology, something along those lines, we have different types of certifications through the water program that supplement that. And what I love about that approach is that it's tying in this exactly this idea that you're talking about that water is life to all of these things. We can't do anything. We had Abby Lundin, who's one of the one of our alums that we've had on this podcast. She brews uh, for Coors Brewery um, and is the head brewer or brewist, as we've talked her about her for the Sandlot Brewery. And so much of our conversation was about water. Uh, and just not realizing like the amount of water that it takes to brew beer and to do those types of things. So you can't escape this idea that water is at the core of everything. But I do love that we have that opportunity here at MSU Denver to to kind of supplement whatever education we are maybe primarily here for with ideas of how does this impact our environment. Yeah, and they actually launched that program, the One World One Water program, when I was a senior my last semester. And I was like, maybe I'll stay longer. <laughs> right. And at the time, my family was like, it's time to graduate. Like, what are you doing? You've been going to school for a long time. You have opportunity ahead of you, like to move forward with it. And, and it, it is a a really amazing program in the sense that it was like online and self-paced and um, I was able to like accomplish it. And again, like it demystified the fact, like I was talking about the air commission, the water commission, whatever we, there's the, the water conservation boards. There's like the round tables There's stormwater, there's wastewater, there's all these like components and it's all regulated differently. And, you know, the skills I've learned there, we've applied to upgrade protections on the South Platte river, the most polluted river in the state of Colorado. And we make Colorado history. We use the rules like they've never been used before. And I think, you know, I really credit the understanding and the training that I got through that program as contributing. Yeah. That's incredible. So time at Metro, uh, you mentioned a lot of work with the Student Government Association, a lot of spaces to be able to communicate. Yeah, I was never on the student government. Oh, no, just working. I I was in a program, though, that I think really is like it led to my ability to do public speaking effectively. Um, It was called the Metro State Runners Program. I don't know if it still exists, but at the time, the idea was like I was like a town crier, basically. I would go on Monday morning to this building and I'd get a packet. I'd get training on what we were trying to do outreach on. You get five minutes at the beginning of class to be like, hey, this is what's going on campus. At the beginning, you don't really know your crowd, but then you start to get to know them and you're like, oh, like, Billy, like you'd love this thing, right? And you almost become like a stand-up comedian in a way of like trying to make it. And then people are like, yeah, like this is five minutes. I don't have to go to class. Like, <laughs> right. uh, But it was a it was a wonderful program. And then I would say that I was a pretty – I was an engaged advocate when it came to the sustainability side. Sure of trying to push my representatives Mm -hmm. on the student government to like do the right thing. Yeah. From a classwork standpoint, what classes had some of the most impact on you? Um, Well, I got to shout out Dr. Malosh, if he's still working here in the botany. He helped train me on botany, plant ecology, doing my research, um, really extended himself. He wrote a letter of support when I ended up becoming the outstanding student from arts and science. So I'm grateful for him. Dr. Linda White, 
um, unfortunately passed away. But I took botanical pharmacology from her, learned to make all these plant medicines, as you know, I guess on this path to be a healer with plants <laughs> instead of a politician. And I, lo- I loved her greatly. We were talking earlier about Dr. Hassan. Robert Poise, um, he, you know, these people were fantastic. Dr. Marantu with Native American Studies. I would say federal Indian law really messed me up, hmm. like internally. Yeah. It was really a challenge. I was like, this is this the most unjust second set of laws. And, you know, people talk about apartheid and stuff, and you have this whole set of laws that's, like, founded in bad Supreme Court rulings and things. You know, that one really, I think, really opened my eyes in a lot of ways, thinking about how you bridge science to social science. And, uh, and and botany. I think those are probably like my favorite classes yeah. um, that I took here. And what I love about that is none of those are political science. I, I love that you took the the courses that spoke to you, the ones of interest to you in these spaces. And I know you got other certificates and minors along the way that well, encompass the, the, that. But... Yeah, the Native American Studies class was yeah. actually required yeah. was by it? my poli-sci degree. I chose American government mm-hmm. as my emphasis, you know. And, and when I transferred here, they were like, you got to do a minor. And it was like leadership development or like international or native American. And where I have seen, and I've tried as an alumni to make a bridge is that we have such a strong Chicano studies program here. Mm -hmm. And the native American studies program is so small, but they are one narrative. They are a transition from one people to a mixed people. And I find myself a lot, especially with my work with green Latinos, like helping people on their journey of understanding their indigeneity and like where their people are from and things. And so I would really like to see long-term more collaboration um, between the Chicano and Native American programs. And so I, and I've, and I've talked to the leadership mm-hmm. uh, about this and I think there's a huge opportunity. I think it would be very healing um, for people to like get a piece of both of them. And then, you know, politi- I guess my water and the water studies class too. Yeah. I guess none of them are political science other than federal Indian law. I think that that's a testament to this idea that we can get whatever the things that drive us, the passions that we have, we have opportunities for exploration. In yeah. And if here. you're paying for full credits, I was taking like 18, 18 credits yeah. every semester. Yeah. They let me overload to like 21. No kidding. Um, I had to go. I was getting straight A's. Yeah. So I had to go to, in mm-hmm. front of the dean or whatever mm-hmm. and they approved it. And my last semester I did do it and mm-hmm. you, you take your main masters, do whatever you can. Yeah. And, I mean, I was fortunate. I think the city was more affordable then. Mm-hmm. So I had one job and I was able to like pay my rent and go to school. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a reality for everybody anymore, but I don't think that people leverage the, I'm already paying for a full amount to like get all the credits you can. Yeah. But then I look sometimes and you're like, oh, I have like 180 credits. I should have a master's degree. <laughs> I should be a doctor by now. Yeah. By now. <laughs> yeah. MSU Denver's annual day of giving is right around the corner. Mark your calendars and get ready to join the Roadrunner community on April 11th, 2024 for MSU Denver's 8th Annual Day of Giving. 24 hours dedicated to raise the resources and support our students need to rise. For more information, visit msudenver.edu giving. This episode is brought to you by the birds at the library. They're just looking for bookworms. So, Ian, you're in a unique situation to be able to talk to us about what's happening in Sun Valley right now. You know, as a Denver native and as somebody that's in that environmental space, I'd love to hear your take on what's happening there. You know, the Zuni Power Plant is one that I have been approached about. I'm very lucky. I'm the vice chair of the Historic Denver Board. I was just elected there and to protect our history and to have these conversations and to talk about reparations and remediation. And even the EJ Task Force I was talking about earlier is, hey, like, 
they never asked these tribes to name these power plants after them. So how do you change the names? I do know that there's an effort afoot and Historic Denver has supported it. I'm set to take a tour next week. I've not fully supported it with Green Latinos um, yet. Not because I don't believe the community deserves an asset. Not because I don't believe a building should be saved. I don't know the environmental condition of the building. And I personally grew up being able to see the Cherokee smokestack from my front yard. And many people who are trying to save it say that that is the most iconic feature, that it's part of our city seal. Not that specific smokestacks, but smokestacks like the Globeville smelter. When they brought down the Globeville smelter, it put toxics all throughout my community and we had a cleaned up superstone site. So part of me feels like, and I, I haven't made up my full mind and whether our nonprofit will support or not, but I think the building could be saved personally having to look at that every day of my life. I think it would be pretty epic if you could pull down the smokestack, save the building, but create a view plane for people that the wealthy get to have. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, if the community's like, no, like we want it, then I would say, yeah, okay, you want it. But my first gut feeling is can we safely bring down that thing full of metal and consider bringing that view, that change in view as like a form of reparations in addition to creating a grocery store or whatever other amenities the community wants. Yeah. Something positive out of this, the Green Latinos led with another group with other groups to block the highway expansion there which we can't continue to make these mistakes like we did on I-70. That's really what radicalized me into environmental justice was this project coming through my community and 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 it echoing the feelings of my friends and my family who were displaced Aurarians, right? Like my oldest friend, his relative is the Casamayan house. That was his great-great-grandma. And he just graduated from Metro. And the way he feels about displacement and how do we have conversations as climate crisis worsens because it was a flood that created the political dynamics for this. Flooding is going to continue to happen. Fires are going to continue to happen. And how is recovery centered in not repeating mistakes of the past? I was literally in Sun Valley yesterday um, at the CDOT commission. You have the headquarters of CDOT literally in front of the crossing that has the most deaths in the entire region from people crossing there in front of this headquarters and they can't figure it out. Sometimes that's the stuff that... Mm -hmm. You know, you were talking earlier about gridlock and it not making sense. It's like, how have you not put a bridge there yet, CDOT? Like, you're too busy thinking about these massive projects and you're not thinking enough about the lived experience of the most impacted people. So I am hopeful that I think that project is going in a good direction. Back to, like, how that can be a piece and a cornerstone for Sun Valley. I think for all of these communities that gentrification is in the bullseye, we need to be thinking about land banking ownership by the people to protect the land, requirements about affordable housing for individuals, and ensuring that we're building healthy places. I'm actually finishing a project. I got an opportunity with the University of Denver, IRIS program, the Integrated Racial Inequality Studies. And we're releasing an analysis of like, where is it healthy to build? It's always mm -hmm. missing from the conversation. Yeah. And I really struggle sometimes, like even in Globeville, where I ran for city council, I do all of this work, I ran for mayor, of course, I want to protect these communities. And then I still say to myself, does it make sense to build an apartment building that puts another 400 people in harm's way here? When we know that there are healthy places that we should be building it if we had the political will to do it. And I, it's, it's, it's always a tough struggle, but it requires sitting down and talking to people in small groups. And just to circle it back to Metro, I think that 
the experience I had from a larger university to here to be able to actually be in a diverse setting, different age groups, in small groups, to have hard conversations is something that this university provides. Yeah. It is interesting. I, I'm. This is not my space, right? So this is all fascinating information for me to hear about. And I think about things like the we do environmental impact studies when we're going to be talking about some sort of development. We don't do wellness studies. How do we change that narrative? Are we hoping that the research that you're doing now is setting some sort of precedent that that's something we can move yeah, for? Yeah, the, the project that I'm getting ready to release is uh, called the Buildable Land Analysis. There's been about six in the country that have been produced. They're required in Oregon and Washington. And yeah, I think the conversation is about how do we build healthy, safe housing and like healthy needs to be an addition to the word attainable mm -hmm. or affordable because right now they're just simply not. And it is a new form of redlining to put all of the affordable housing in places that are toxic. And it doesn't make sense again for those who are about economics, it doesn't make sense in an economic sense because if you approach the communities that are spending the most on Medicaid, mm -hmm. that is directly related to these environmental factors and like the social determinants of health that are interrelated. And we can do better. And I hope that these reports will be there. I will say, I don't know how early this is going to come out. It might have come out by the time this podcast comes out, but we've run the tiny home sites that have been chosen by this administration through our analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're going to be releasing those shortly. What I can tell you is that majority are not healthy. Hmm. And the ones that are have been canceled due to pushback were in the healthiest locations they could have been. What else would you like to talk about? One last thing I'd love to talk about is I'm just also writing a book right now. Ah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, it's called Jury Duty on Tax Day. And it's about running for office. It's like a how-to guide. And the true story is that when I was running for council, I got jury duty on tax day. <laughs> and I was like, everyone's like, you should skip jury duty. And I was like, what kind of civic leader would you be if you can't go to jury duty? So I went to jury duty and I did what every good American does, their taxes at the last minute. <laughs> sure. And we're like sitting at a table in the government building and everyone's like high school again. You're like, what do you have for number five? <laughs> what do I put in number six? And then these poor suckers who were stuck in that room as I campaigned them. Hi, I'm Ian Thomas DeFoya. I'm running for District 9. And then their looks, they're like, oh, my God, this is the seventh circle of hell. I'm in jury <laughs> duty and I'm being campaigned and it's tax day. Like that's like the introduction of the story. But it's short. It's short essays. It's about 80 pages long. And it's about how do you prepare yourself mentally to run for office? Mm -hmm. Are you prepared to run for office? Have you thought about this with fundraising? I want somebody to be able to pick it up and get to the last page and say, I can do this. Or maybe I just want to support people in it. Or maybe I don't want to do this at all. But it's a real honest look, and I've run for office twice. I've worked on a dozen ballot issues. This is the heart of life of what it really looks like. How do you protect yourself? How do you protect your family? How do you still love your family? How do you still love yourself? How do you not take it personal? There is an emotional side to running for office that is never discussed, and I hope that people will take something good out of this book. That's incredible because I do think about that. The the barriers to even running for office and the barriers to civic service are often the things that we don't talk about. It is the protection. It's the sure there's the finance side, which we talk a little bit about. We know it costs money to do that, but people don't really understand how much money it costs, right? But but the emotional barriers, the being picked on 
barriers, the being in the news all of the time barriers, the people taking segments and clips of something you said and putting them out of context, and then the PR pieces that happen there. And for a country whose sole purpose of civic duty initially was right to let everybody, let the people lead, let everybody have that opportunity, it has not turned into that now in 2023, right? It's the same cast of characters um, with the same privilege in certain spaces, and it's very rarely we hear the story of somebody that actually came up and did this without a lot of you know, bootstrap pulling, right? Um, so I'm excited to hear that you're doing that, that you're having that conversation and you're creating the idea that public service and civic service is actually accessible for all of us. And here's the path. Here's a path. Here's some guidelines. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. When are you looking to publish? Summer. Okay. Yeah, it's coming. Been, I started writing it actually after I ran for city council. Yeah. Um, and I continue to go back and I look at the drafts and um, now running for mayor. It was a whole... You know, it's like upping it up, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. You oh, go I'm from sure. a district to a whole citywide and, you know, one of the largest cities in the country and um, all eyes on you is a, definitely a different thing. But what I will say is tools that I helped develop when I was 28 helped me when I was 37 running sure. for office the second time. Yeah. More public office in your future, you think? Maybe. Unknown. Unknown. <laughs> Unknown. I think that I get asked a lot to do it. It's mm-hmm. a lot of the right time, the mm-hmm. right scope of work. There's also more people now. Mm-hmm. When I ran for office the first time, I was doing it really in an act of self-defense against the highway and against the criminalization of homelessness. And at that time, it was even before Bernie Sanders had come onto the scene. I think that next cycle, four years later, there was a plethora of individuals whom um, were running. So I chose not to. I chose to work on campaigns instead. And then why I chose to run for mayor is, you know, the matching money. And also we have to push the conversation on human rights and the environment. And I didn't see that reflected in other individuals that were running. Although I was the second person to announce that I was running for mayor who would have thought there'd be some 31 people <laughs> right? Um, who would. But, you know, that fair election fund really was driven again from like observing what happened. So when I ran for council, I was beat by the most corporate candidate ever. One man with 27 companies wrote $27,000 checks from 27 LLCs. That Citizens United, it's broken. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we came back and we ran Democracy for the People, which created matching money, which was phenomenal. I was on the TV commercial for it. Um, and then I was like, yeah, I'm going to use this. Everyone else is excited about using it. So I will see, you know, in four years, eight years, how does the program change? How will people be? Uh, what I really want people to understand that I have learned is there are plenty of opportunities to run for office or hold an office. There are rural utility boards. There mm-hmm. are water conservation districts. There's RTDs. There are some that they can't even find enough people mm-hmm. to do it. And so I think more coaching on the front end, and this is what this book is about, is like, is this the one I want to do? I approach this a lot when people come to me for consulting, especially if they're running for councils or legislative. I say, well, what committee do you want to sit on? And they're like, oh, the housing one. If you can't tell me the name of the actual committee, then you're not doing this because you don't understand the work. You're doing this because you find some other reason or someone else is telling you, like, you should do this. But you got to put the work into saying. And and I will say for all listeners, if you're trying to have a bullshit test on whether somebody really has thought through the job or not, who's running for a legislative seat. Ask them that exact question. Which committee do you want to sit on? And if they're fundamentally like, I want to sit on energy and commerce. I want to sit on X, Y, and Z. Then you know that they understand what the job is. Mm -hmm. Learn what the job is before you decide you want to do the job. And they're all nuanced. They're all different. And part of why I had made a choice to go for mayor this time is because I didn't feel like council 
one seat on council we'd seen wasn't enough to make a difference. Now, I will tell you from an intellectual exercise and having worked as a secretary in council, watching council unite to make leverage on the budget here in Denver right now is really cool to see. It makes me feel more hopeful for the legislative process. For the longest time, it was like what the mayor was doing is what path we were on. And that's why we chose to go for that one. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I was just in a legislative update meeting here on campus because obviously we, as a state-funded institution, we're constantly in conversations with what bills are we going to be supporting? What type of funding is the governor recommending? What is the JBC going to do? All of those types of things. Joint budget committee for thank the you, listeners. Thank you. <laughs> See, that's my bullshit test. I knew what that was. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things we did talk about, uh, our legislative affairs team is fantastic. And they were talking about this unique time where the city council is actually coming together and informing this. It's no longer just what the governor says is what's going to happen. So I'm interested to see how all of this plays out, that we're actually having more of a democratic process of how we're allocating and appropriating our money. Yeah. The Environmental Justice Task Force has like $10 million mm -hmm. in this most recent budget request, but a request isn't enough. We got to get yeah. out there and we got to make sure that they approve it. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. And any way in which I can be of assistance to Metro at the Capitol, I'm happy to, to jump in and testify. Perfect. Uh, we will take you up on that because I know we bring faculty, we bring students, we bring alums all the time when there's especially bills that uh, we either feel is something from a value standpoint that we're synced with in some way that we want to make sure we're either showing our support for or, or times that we see the trickle down effect of how a bill that might not even be something that necessarily is affecting our institution, but it's affecting our students. Uh, we want to make sure that we're creating the right advocacy and bringing in, you know, expert witnesses is always something mm -hmm. that we look for. So, yeah, thanks. What else? Support public transit to Red Rocks. That's an initiative. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Eight years. Supporting public transit to Red Rocks is just absolute no brainer. Uh, it's an equity issue for those individuals who want to access mountain parks. Just think uh, there's a, it's a seven mile bus from Morrison Road to Golden Line. That's what we're envisioning. It accesses literally tens of thousands of acres of parks Matthews Winters Park, Apex Park, Red Rocks Park, Dakota Ridge, or Dinosaur Ridge. Think what it means for a family now that their children are subsidized for $5. A mom could go and picnic all day. Um, it's a climate issue. There's over a million people that go there a year just for concerts. This isn't even to visit uh, the, park. To visit the yeah. park. And it's a historic site. It actually historically had a train, like a cog rail that went to it for people to visit until the 1920s. And so why wouldn't we resurrect that? And then it's a safety issue. Mm -hmm. And it's equity too for workers. When I talk with IATSE, the, the international... Gosh, they're going to be mad at me for not remembering it. When I talk to IATSE <laughs> Local 7 and their workers who are staffing Red Rocks, they say transportation is one of the hardest things. And, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, local electeds, I think there's a lot of reasons for a lot of people to see good in this. And that's a project that I have been working on literally for like 10 years. And I just want to see it done so I can move on to something else. So, you know, call your local RTD member, call your local elected official, say like, hey, Red Rocks Mountain Parks, this is a no-brainer, public transit. In addition to all those things, I mean, that are just safety issues, equity issues, it's hard for me to think that we can't get enough Coloradans behind this idea that, like, it's one of our most beautiful areas. That when you talk about, especially as a transplant, like, why do you move to Colorado? You hear all the time, like, oh, it's so beautiful, and it's this, and the nature. And it's like, well, go see it. That is so local to you. That's there. It's available mm -hmm. to you. If we made it more accessible in that place and then could facilitate more visitors with less cars, less environmental impact, it just seems like a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Now, could the transportation take us to the top of the amphitheater so you don't have to walk up the stairs? 
what we imagine is like 16th Street Mall kind of bus that yeah, yeah. opens up flat. And I think you probably would have a bus that would take you from the box office to the sure. top. I think that that becomes the circulator. Uh, I don't want everybody to think like we're advocating for a very expensive train from the beginning. I think that no. a bus makes a lot of sense. The 16th Street Mall buses aren't even all running right now because they decided to cut down all the trees. Bad move by the previous administration in my mind. Um, to spend $100 million killing trees and just moving buses from the side to the middle. I would not have made that investment <laughs> if I was uh, in charge. But I think that, uh, you know, Chances Red Rocks, I'm for that. Perfect. Uh, well, Ian, this has been great. We're going to finish with our rapid-fire questions. So we ask all of our guests uh, the same three questions. So the first one is, what is your favorite MSU Denver memory? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I think that I was the first person in my family to graduate college. And when we were sitting outside, even though it was cold that day, I remember the fog came in. To be able to sit there and know my family was in the audience, it was uh, just a really fulfilling experience Like to cap off what felt like a very long journey. Yeah. And we talk about often as, as an institution that really has a, a huge student population that is first in their family to go to college, that it is a transformational moment for the entire family. It's it's a generational change. Yeah. And I it's incredible to hear you. And I and that. I you only asked for one, but I'm gonna throw another That's one real fine. quick. And that is there's no rules here. Just being sent to and again back to that Denver Post article, which I'll probably send you guys you can link it in here. Being sent to I had worked at Rec Centers. They were like, you can go tour a rec center. It was a Parks and Rec course. It was a Parks and Rec course. Online, overloaded. My partner at the time was like, you don't need to take another class. You're already taking enough classes. And I went to that public meeting and it changed my life. And when I was like, hey, how come you don't have recycling here? And they were like, oh, it's not important. And I remember I came back to campus and I was like, you want to hear what these people had to say? And we wrote our first petition. Like it wasn't an official petition that you had to like, but we, that was the first time I collected petitions. And I think we collected, like I went to all my clubs on the environment and we got like 600 and I went back the next month and the next month and the next month. And like now we got some of those victories, like as a result and councilman actually just got elected. He was there and he was the vice president of the parks or the president of the parks board that, that very first day. And like, he encouraged me to testify for the first time. He remembers like we truly got these things as a result. And so I guess like one of my favorite memories is though I was frustrated that day, so much good came out of that moment of public participation for the first time, going up to the mic the first time. That's awesome. All right. What does it mean to you to be a roadrunner? Mm. Well, like I was telling everybody on the way in here, the new sign goals into greatness. That's how I feel in right now for Metro. I think that was like I needed it at the right moment when I saw it a couple of days ago. It feels amazing to be a roadrunner. I run into alumni everywhere I go. And I also feel better that I didn't get in crazy debt to get the great education that I did get through Metro. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Last one. If you could put a billboard on campus with a piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say? Um, okay. This is from a song I love. All the haters really love me. They just pretend they don't. I got sunshine in my pocket. I'm right here in my zone. I think the idea is that like as hard as it feels at this moment, you're not alone, that there is a way to move through a bad circumstance, a bad argument, a disagreement with a colleague. Um, You don't like your professor. How do you work through that situation so that you can get the education you need? And I think that if you're positive and optimistic, you're going to get through this. And you just got to you got to keep thinking that when it's hard. 
That's awesome. There's so much power in optimism and in having a positive state of mind, which comes from being well and healthy and thinking through all that to say it's, it's easier to be negative, right? And so we have to be very thoughtful in making sure that we are choosing optimism and choosing positivity and choosing to see things with a lens of what's possible and not necessarily what maybe even feels probable. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree with you more that that is probably the best advice we could give to young people right now is choose to see what's possible. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the last thing I would say is communicate, especially as a student or in the workplace, Things are working out for you. Communicate. If people find ways to be flexible with you, even if it's going to be late, do it and turn it in. <laughs> Correct. Right. Uh, have have some have some value in that. Yeah. Well, Ian, this has been fantastic. I've learned more than my brain can process in a moment. This is actually, our, I think, our first podcast where, uh, even as I was talking with Ruby as we were prepping for this, I was like, "This is out of my zone." I'm just so uninformed in this. So this has been fantastic for me to be able to listen to you, to hear your expertise, and to know that the path that MSU Denver kind of paved for you, you're just turning in over tenfold. Uh, the work you're doing is incredible, and I'm so glad to be able to say that I'm a part of a community you're a part of, and I am so glad that you're continuing to fight for larger communities. Mm, that's so nice. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the staff who work for Metro State, and for all the alumni that are out there listening, come to the events. Yeah. There are a lot of events you can go to. There are so many alumni. We should have the biggest events in the city, honestly. So whether that's homecoming or a game, or you want to get a beer. I know there's so many events. I keep them on my calendar. I try to be there. I hope to see you in person one day. Say hello. Thanks. Appreciate you, Ian. This has been awesome. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Wrightout, production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, roadies.